I was telling people a few days ago that uh, when I, f- can you hear okay? Okay, adjusting the sound, okay. Well, this is just a little story, so uh, it should be okay if it doesn't get recorded. I remember as a young man when I wanted to become a monk, as many of the friends which I had in the Buddhist community, they thought I wasn't serious about being a monk. And I remember this one gentleman, I was trying to find a nice monastery somewhere to ordain in. Of course, I was born in England. I used to go along to the Thai temple in Richmond at the time. And many of the people I met there, I asked them, do you know a, a good monastery in Thailand where I can ordain as a monk? And a lot of them just, they weren't really interested in giving me that information. I remember this one gentleman, I met him later on, and he actually had been a monk with Ajahn Chah in Wat Bapong. And when I saw him about a year or two after I ordained, I said, why did you not tell me about Ajahn Chah? And his reply was that I was too happy. He didn't think I was serious to become a monk. As if you had to be miserable in order to go to a temple to become a monk. It's like, you know, why go to a hospital if you're not sick? It's actually to get even healthier. So anyway, I was always like a kind of happy monk. I remember telling those people afterwards, there's one of those people who uh, I knew, he was a member of the party text society, and you know, I saw him just before I ordained, he said, oh, you'll be back in a couple of weeks. <laughs> it's 48 years now, <laughs> I've been a monk. And I'm enjoying it to the max. And also, I do recall, if you don't know the story, it's accurate, that when I first became a monk, or like a novice monk, first of all, they had to ordain as a seminera, a novice first of all, and then later on you got the ordination as a full monk. And I remember those first nights in Bangkok, I didn't know about Ajahn Shah yet, ordained in Bangkok, And when I ordained there in Bangkok, the first three or four nights, I don't know whether it was three or four, but around that amount, I'd always have a nightmare in the monastery room in Bangkok. I wake up in the middle of the night, but my nightmare was that I was a lay person. Honestly, I'm not... (laughs) Exaggerated. I thought I was a lay person. And I opened my eyes and I saw my robes folded in front of my bed on the floor. And it was like a great relief. <sighs> I really am a monk. <laughs> and that repeated itself three or four nights in a row. It was almost telling me that this is the life I always wanted. And even though I kind of knew that this was my niche in life, I couldn't tell other people. I really wanted to become a monk all my life and this is where I fat in. 
because I'd always think, no, you're just making it up. But anyway, it proved its point. It was almost something inside of me, some deep psychology which could only come out in a dream, was actually telling me this was my life and how I enjoyed this. But also, just how the happiness was important. It wasn't a hindrance being a happy monk. <laughs> I don't know why people think that. Why you have to be miserable. And of course later on, when I did start <clears throat> learning, especially learning the Pali language, now I went to a good university, I knew, past my Latin O-levels and stuff, I knew how these languages worked. And so it wasn't that hard to learn the Pali language. And once I started learning Pali, it was just like an eye-opener. It wasn't that I, it was an effort to learn. It was just you started reading some of the words of the Buddha in the original language. And it was mind-opening. I'll mention that during the retreat, especially some things we're going to talk about in the Sutta class this afternoon. And some of those words there, when you read them in Pali, and you recognize them because you've seen them many times before, you get a much greater and deeper understanding of their meaning. And one of those suttas I often quote on these retreats, in the early time of this retreat, is the Dhammachedya Sutta. And that particular teaching of the Buddha, it was relating a story where King Pasenadi, one of the supporters of the Buddha, uh, went to see him after work. He'd just been a king. And he, was, he went over to the Chetawana monastery, just a walk away. And he said he always really loved going to visit the Buddha. Number one, because you know, he wasn't in the big shot anymore. There he was a king, but he didn't have to have everybody uh, bowing to him or being afraid of him. It was a place where he could relax. And when he went to see the Buddha in the Buddha's kuti, uh, after bowing, actually, before bowing to him, the, the king took hold of the Buddha's feet and started kissing them. And it was like a, a way of respect and thanks. And the Buddha said, you're a great king. <laughs> Why are you kissing my feet for? And the, the Pasenadi replied, because you know, you've been like more than like a, a teacher to me. You've been like a friend and give me wonderful advice throughout the whole of my life. I'm just so grateful to you. And that's what he did, kiss feet. And you know that once this monk came up to me, I was in Bangkok, and he grabbed my feet and started kissing them. I don't know what disease he must have caught because my feet weren't that clean walking in Bangkok. <laughs> and I said, what in the heck are you doing that for? And he said, because I was the f first person to teach him meditation. And he said, he, he thanked me so much for teaching him meditation in a way which he could really uh, understand and get into. And he later became a monk and a teacher himself. But that really sort of quite touched me. Uh, but in particular, I went on to say in the uh, Dhammachetya Sutta that the king next said that I love coming to this monastery 
because elder monks and nuns in this monastery are always happy and smiling. Goes to other places and people aren't smiling at all. And that was the one example in the sutta, the clear example, where you saw those people who were committed to meditation were happy. That's what it does to you. Oops. There we go. And the, ki- the Buddha replied to the king, yes, that is what you can expect when the monks and nuns, or anybody, when they are practicing their meditation and they're getting deep insights. It so destroys suffering. It lessens it and before it destroys it totally. And what can happen when it lessens suffering? It creates happiness and a nice smile. And I'm being honest with you that these days when people come in their interviews and they tell me what's happening in their meditation, a lot of time, I'm giving too many secrets away, but I started, so here we go. When they start telling me about their meditation, that's one of the first things I look at is their smile, their emotional state. Because if they have had a lovely meditation, you can't avoid it. You're happy and smiley. It's just the afterglow of meditation. I still remember this one disciple years ago. He came up to me and I said, how's your meditation going? He said, I'm a bit disappointing this time. I said, why? He said, well, I can only get the first jhana, I can't get the second jhana. (laughs) And when he said things like that, I thought, this fellow has totally misunderstood what these deep meditations are. Even if you had like a first jhana, you'd have what I call like the afterglow. I still remember this one uh, lady, and <laughs> the nuns know who this is. Not, not you two, but she became a nun afterwards, a bhikkhuni. She was trying on one of these retreats, which I gave over in, it was actually in Thailand. She wasn't a Thai. So, she was really trying hard, a very intelligent woman, and also has done lots of meditation before. So she was on a nine-day retreat there. At the end of the retreat, she was getting nowhere. So she basically gave up. But then she said that the flight back to her home city uh, was a bit late, So her taxi to the airport was not going to come until another hour and a bit's time. So she had, what she said, time to kill. That's not a very good Buddhist um, metaphor, time to kill. Same same with some of these other silly metaphors we have in English. Uh, to, To kill two birds with the same stone. That's not a good metaphor. So instead of saying things like that, we usually say, to cut two carrots with the same knife. (laughs) Make it a bit more, not kidding time. 
But anyway, that's what she said. So she went into the hall just to meditate. And probably one of the first times in the retreat, she wasn't trying to achieve anything or do anything or get anywhere. She just had an hour to kill. I always remember her because after that hour was finished, I was just having, a, I think, a, a fruit juice or something. Just waiting for you know, my taxi bus to come and take me back to the airport. But I always remember she's squatting on the floor with her hands up. I just Rob, thank you. At last, at last. Oh, it was beautiful. She had so much happiness. And the only thing I could, like, I would say it was similar to, to maybe just one of your children. <coughs> They'd just fallen in love. Oh, mummy, daddy, oh, she's so beautiful, oh, he's so nice. <coughs> That's what it was like. She was just overpowered with this beautiful emotion. She just got into her first deep meditation. It brings up this incredible joy and happiness. But more than that, it also it makes the mind very, very clear. One of the things with this meditation which I will emphasize, that once the meditation gets deep, what's actually happening is these things which we call five hindrances, they just get weakened and weakened until they get temporarily suppressed. Those five hindrances, just in brief, are wanting, negativity, sloth and torpor, that's the dullness of the mind, the restlessness and remorse and the doubt. And of all of those, it's the doubt which is the hardest to understand. Because people always think they're right. That's one thing which Socrates said, no one ever thinks they are wrong. They can think they were wrong, but they're right about that. <laughs> and it's a very wonderful sort of psychological insight that you know, we never think that we are wrong. But anyway, uh, you know, with the doubt being overcome, uh, please, I've got lots of time to talk, so I'm just going to tell a couple of other stories. And this was a story that when your meditation does get very deep, you know, I'm a professional meditator, then afterwards you can do some really weird things. And one of those things which I did, I, I can't tell about supernatural powers. But one of the things I can say, it's just on the edge. Okay, I'm pushing the envelope a little bit, but it's allowable according to my Vinaya. Because it's not about previous lives, it's about early life. So I remember having a nice meditation and just asking myself this question. You know, just a th almost like a thought. What is my earliest memory? I only did it once. You know, one time, because the mind was too peaceful to think much. And straight away, what came up in my mind was the memory when I was in my pram. 
I was a grown adult at that time. I was a monk. But now I can remember what it was like being in my baby's pram with my mother pushing me. And it was a very clear, not like a memory of what you had for breakfast this morning, it was like a memory of recalling all the details, like being right back there. So I could explore it, even though I had my eyes closed and my monk's robe sitting in the hall of Bodhinyana, so you know it wasn't that long ago. And sitting in the hall of Bodhinyana, being able to explore the little pram which I had when I was, I don't know, maybe a few weeks old. And one of the things which I remembered there, I didn't really need this memory to confirm what was happening, but one of the things which I recalled was that I knew my surroundings by their smell, much more so than by you know, what they looked like. And that was strange, because something I never expected. My mother, I could recognize her by how she smelled. Like, you know, you may have like a pet dog, and the dog smells you and knows whether you are, knows who you are, a friend or a foe. But also, that smell was how I recognized all my surroundings. It was my dominant sense. Not hearing, not seeing, but smelling. And I remember telling many people that, and some people were surprised. They said, yes, of course. I think it's known for doctors who look after babies and young people that that is their dominant sense. That's what grows up first. That's what develops first of all in the baby's brain before they recognize people by sight or recognize the sound of your voice. It's how you smell. And that was one of those things which confirmed it to me that was a legitimate memory of early time of my past. But the other thing, and the reason why I bring it up, was at that time there was also this certainty. There was no doubt at all. Sometimes you can have dreams, you can have fantasies or imaginations. But this was more, as real, probably more real than when you're seeing with your eyes open when you're smelling, when you're sitting in front of your breakfast. This was actually real. There was no doubt there. And it was hard to explain just what that experience is. But when you've had a deep meditation and those hindrances, especially the last hindrance of doubt, has been suppressed, then what you see or what you hear even what you know, this, that aspect which we call doubt just is not there anymore. And it's hard to explain what that experience feels like. But anyway, what happens after deep meditations, you get extra clarity. And that extra clarity of your mind, when you don't want anything, you've got no ill will, you don't have any dullness of the mind or restlessness of the mind and then, of course no doubt and then what that actually does it means whatever you look at and whatever you see you can see so much more of it 
So I hope it happens to you, if it hasn't happened already during this retreat or other retreats you do. Sometimes that when you finish your meditation, you open your eyes and you see the bamboo floor, say, in front of you. And you see so much more in that bamboo floor than you've ever seen before. Even this is the bamboo floor here, which is quite interesting and very beautiful. I remember the first time this happened to me, and not the first time actually, but when we were doing some walking meditation in the hall over in Thailand. It was just concrete, nothing else on the surface. And the concrete had been laid by the villagers. So it wasn't smooth. And sometimes if the concrete was going a bit off when they were trying to level it, they would spit on it. That's the only source of water they would have in their mouth. And then they sort of trowel it to try and make it level. So it was not level, but no one ever noticed that. When I was doing walking meditation and getting very peaceful, and again, those hindrances were disappearing, I remember having to stop walking and just staring at this area of concrete and it became so beautiful. It was like a landscape. It had its hills and valleys, only they were probably only a millimetre or a couple of millimetres high. And all the different shades of grey which were on there. And as you saw those, it looked incredibly beautiful. Again, not exaggerating, but my goodness, this piece of concrete which I'd been walking on and sitting on for such a long time, only now did I appreciate just how literally gorgeous it was. And I stopped and stared for about 10 or 15 minutes. And of course, you know, the, once the mind get more restless, what I thought I should be doing was to get some uh, concrete saw saw out that particular area and I thought of sending it to the Tate Gallery in London. It was so beautiful. <laughs> and I'd been to art galleries before. I knew what I was talking about, but I'd never seen anything so, so balanced and so uh, beautiful in the way the different shades of grey were arranged on this little piece of concrete. That's what this meditation does to you. It makes your awareness very, very strong. So strong you see the beauty in unexpected places. And at this time I, I do some quotations. This was from uh, the English poet and uh, painter William Blake. It was in between 1600 and something, I think he died in the early 1700s. And one of the poems which he wrote just you know, the four lines of this poem were to see a world in a grain of sand, see a heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand, and eternity in an hour. Eternity in an hour, I always remember that my talks are usually one hour long. <laughs> but I plead to feel their eternity. But you can see what he was meaning in there. 
see a grain of sand, when your mindfulness is very, very strong, you can see just beauty in so much, in everything almost. After one retreat, which I did a personal retreat over in Bodhinyana Monastery, when I came off the retreat, I came up for breakfast, and that day, one of the ingredients in the breakfast was baked beans. And honestly, I've never been able to repeat this. I took one baked bean and put it in my mouth, just one bean, and it was a taste explosion. I couldn't believe just how delicious and how well balanced was all the different ingredients of the sauce on surrounding one baked bean. And when I crushed the, the soft bean between my teeth, this texture was just absolutely perfect, not too hard, not too soft. And I was blissing out on just one baked bean, as if it was made by a five-star chef, Michelin chef. It just came from a can, that's all. <laughs> but the amount of, you could feel and pick up in your mind when the, after a deep meditation was gorgeous. And that's almost like some of these, what I might call little free gifts from meditation. You see so much happiness and so much joy wherever you are. And so, uh, simple things, you see a little rock and on the, on the ground. And it's totally unique and beautiful. And when you're meditating, you sometimes find people just standing, staring at these things. Don't interrupt them. Let them enjoy the benefits of powerful mindfulness. Because later on, once that mindfulness gets that strong, first of all, you can watch something like the breathing. The breathing's not beautiful, is it? <coughs> My goodness it is. Once you start looking at it with a strong mindfulness. Later on this afternoon, is going to do the sutta class of Anapanasati. And it's one thing which is said there specifically by the Buddha. Notice of breathing in and breathing out. You notice what they call pity and sukha, this delight and pleasure. Do you have to develop that? No, because it's natural. Once the hindrances get very... Uh, removed or very weak. You want something like the breath and it's gorgeous. It's delightful. Early on I used to describe it as a beautiful breath. But then somebody just corrected me. You're not seeing this with your eyes. You're actually experiencing it. It's like you're, it's the delight. It's one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen or experienced rather. So because of that, it becomes so easy to watch your breath. You can't take your eyes off it. It's like watching a sunset, the most beautiful sunsets you've ever seen. And you do see some beautiful sunsets here in China Grove. You know, even from uh, the, the inside area. Or sometimes people go over to the lookout 
which is about half a kilometre away, and just at sunsets. And you get some beautiful sunsets over the Indian Ocean. Why would people want to walk all that way just to see a sunset? Because it's gorgeous. But then you can just close your eyes and watch your breath. And that's even as gorgeous or even more. This is what we're doing in our meditation. When the mindfulness gets strong and the hindrances get weakened, it gets more and more blissful. So if happiness comes up in your meditation, please don't think what's going on. I'm supposed to be exploring suffering. No, you're exploring the end of suffering. The absence of it. And when that happens, the mind gets very, very bright. And that's why, if you follow the instructions, you come on these retreats, and that's the best holiday you've ever had. Ever. What does holiday mean? Holy day. <laughs> For many people, they go on holiday, it's like shopping day. <laughs> I, you know, I still can't understand why people do this. Well, they, they go overseas to go shopping. Because all the stuff which you can buy in Perth, you can buy in Singapore, you can buy in any old uh, city centre. Or even better, you can buy online. You don't need to go shopping. <laughs> How many people want to go shopping on the last day of the retreat? Be honest. <laughs> okay, don't, don't be honest. I can't imagine that. But anyway... So this is much more fun, much more happiness. It's one of the reasons why that when people come in a meditation, that this was years ago, that it was the same retreat where that man, you know, had a, the sinus cancer, and the person actually drove me to that retreat, you know, from Sydney Airport. He actually let on that he'd given a nickname for the meditation hall as the torture chamber. You know, like people had to sit for hours. They weren't allowed to move. They couldn't sit on the, on the cushions. <coughs> they had to sit you know, on the hard floor. And, and he said, oh, I was just... He thought that somehow or other, if it hurts, you're going to get something good out of it. And... So he gave the, the nickname, the torture chamber, the meditation. I thought that was disgusting. Something like meditation, to associate that with pain. So that was where I renamed every meditation center, which I go to, renamed it not torture chamber, not jhana grove, but club med. Meditation. <laughs> So welcome to Club Med Serpentine, Western Australia. That gives a different connotation of what we're doing here. Joyful and happy and eventually blissful. And it does work. I've still got an email which this one executive from Sydney sent me. She came on one of my retreats years ago here and when she came on this retreat, that 
Uh, she said she had to beg and grovel to her boss in Sydney to give her a week off work. But he gave in. She came here. And then she said, when she returned home after you know, the nine-day retreat, you know, on the Monday morning, went to work, her boss looked at her and said, what drug is Ajahn Brahm giving you in serpentine? <laughs> I don't care what it is, but please, next time, bring me some. Because <laughs> he, he could see straight away just how peaceful and blissful she was just after a little retreat. It had a huge effect, which even the boss saw. So because of that, this is what happens on the retreat. Please look after yourself, relax to the max. The hindrances disappear, and you know that with a smile, and seeing the beauty in a, in a bamboo floor, or in a piece of concrete which you've never seen before, and it's there. You're not going crazy, your mindfulness is going strong. And so if you want to watch the breath for hours, imagine your breath is so beautiful. It's lovely. Why do you want to take your attention away from it? It's not that you force the attention onto things like your breathing. It's that breathing draws you in. And so these are the ways which we meditate. Now, of course, when we are meditating, it is not just sitting down on a chair. Or on, you know, a lot of, some time ago, you know, we were supposed to be a high-tech society. And, you know, even you know, looking at a couple of people, sometimes, you know, it's not comfortable on your cushions. So we should actually, I've mentioned this to a few people, why don't you start a nice business in Singapore manufacturing high-tech meditation cushions? So high-tech meditation cushions are, you know, you, they can be cushions, but you can, you've got the remote control. You know, if one part of your body needs to be raised a bit, you can press it and it inflates with the air and that one goes up. If you know, you're sort of leaning back, one part goes up and you can lean more forward. If you've got a sore knee, you can press another button, just like in the Singapore Airlines business class, and give you a massage. Massage. <laughs> <laughs> if you have sloth and torpor, you can press another little button, and with your cup, you get a latte or a flat white to overcome your sloth and torpor. <laughs> People think I'm crazy thinking things like that, but I think things like that because it's important for you to have comfort when you're meditating. So don't be afraid of sitting in the chairs if you need to. If you're meditating a lot, sometimes you can change from sitting on the floor sometimes to sitting on the chair sometimes to get your body nice and comfortable. For such a long time, I would never sit on a chair when I was meditating. I'd always prefer sitting on the, on the floor on some cushions. But then we had the COVID time, and you couldn't really teach retreats face to face. So I did a lot of meditations on Zoom. And when you're doing on Zoom, you've got to face the 
uh, the machine there, and so I was always sitting on a chair. And I learned how to meditate sitting on a chair, and it's wonderful. One of the things which I always used to do, and even if you want to do this here, please, if you're sitting on a chair, take your socks off. Don't do it now, but later on, go barefoot. And then with your feet, one of the first things which I did was to feel the texture of the bamboo floor or the concrete or the carpet on your feet. My feet soon became really sensitive. It's a special feeling of the of the the wood. And after a while you can really feel it. It's nothing like it. Or on the when I walk outside, I, of course I don't use my shoes in this place, it's very clean. Jhana Grove. And I can test that because once I've done walking, say from here to my heart, the teacher's kuti, I look at my feet and they're clean. There's hardly any dirt here. It's a very clean environment. But that means I can also feel the different textures of the paths in this place. If you want to do the walking meditation, we have the three rooms. There's one room over there, one room in the back, and one room over here. We've got these red carpets for you. They're really yoga mats. I call them red carpets because you deserve the red carpet walking meditation. <laughs> it's a beautiful way of feeling the sensations in your feet, becoming more aware, more mindful. One of the other things you can do to actually to get more mindfulness up and more joy. It's the full moon is coming up soon on Monday. And so at night time, instead of like sitting meditation here or maybe after the talk, go out to the stupas. Those stones would have picked up the warmth from the, the sun of the day. And you can lay on your back and watch the full moon and the stars in the heavens. It becomes a gorgeous experience. And to do that, nothing much is moving. It makes you quite calm and still. And it's comfortable. We have to get there quickly because there's only so many people <laughs> can get on there. <coughs> it becomes beautiful and still and gives you the start of this joy in stillness and in peace. Sometimes people sit here meditating <coughs> and I admire your effort but I don't admire your wisdom. You sit, sit, sit and there's no happiness and peace coming. And then sometimes I ask you, why not go and sit in the kitchen with a cup of tea or coffee or water or juice, whatever you like. Sit in an area in front of the dining room, sorry, and just watch the trees grow. That's one of my little sayings, to watch the trees grow. You have to be very patient to watch a tree. They do grow, you know. But to be able to see them. In other words, it's learning how to sit there and just watch nature without doing anything. To see if you can calm this mind, this restlessness, which always wants to control and do and think. I think in one of the first books which I wrote, I mentioned about learning how to be still.
and asking people, look, in Australia many people have gardens in the back of their house, but very few people actually enjoy them. They always do gardening, they're always doing something there. So I asked people, I said, oh, spend an hour a day if you wish. An hour a day just getting a seat out and sitting out in your garden doing nothing. So you know what they do? They get out some, uh, in the old days anyway, like a radio or an iPod. They're not enjoying the garden, they're sitting there tapping their fingers. That's not enjoying the garden. Put that away. They get a book out about gardening. <laughs> the book is not the garden. So they put all those books and machines away and they just look at the garden. And the next thing which they do, still not really enjoying the garden, they start thinking and planning. You know that, that the, the lawn needs mowing, the leaves need raking. And now a nice little bush would go over, good over there, and that tree over there should be trimmed, and maybe I can put something else here and something else there. That's not enjoying the garden. That's actually seeing its faults and seeing how it can be improved. That's more restlessness. To be able to enjoy a garden is to be able to sit out there and say, even though the lawn needs mowing, even though the bushes need pruning, even though another bush needs to be put over there, not now. Right now it's good enough. So you can be at peace with the garden as it is, with no thoughts necessary, with no trying to improve, no, try, no trying to, to get rid of problems. Which is one of the reasons why that what we do in meditation, one of the most important parts of meditation, is the loving kindness. Caring for your mind, caring for your body, caring for your breath, not trying to train it and improve it. So, that's one of the reasons why well, I saw his parents a few days ago, they were surprised that this fellow didn't come, I think he was busy. But he was one of the students in the little Dharma school when I first came here. And he eventually became a doctor. And when he was on his internship, I think it was at Royal Perth Hospital, I recall him coming to see me on a Saturday after lunch. And he was quite distressed. And he said that he had to resign. He couldn't stay as a doctor anymore. I was really surprised. He was very smart, a very good kid. I said, why? And he told me what had happened that very morning, that one of his patients, a young woman, maybe 24, 25 or 23 or something, around that age, she unexpectedly died. And he was the doctor in charge. He tried to keep her alive but failed. And so he was the one who had to tell her husband. And these were two young people, you know, in a fully in love, 
had to tell this man that the wife, which he still gave his heart fully towards, was no more. And worse, what turned the knife in in the wound? He had to tell the two small children they had no mummy anymore. And that really went so deep inside of me. He said, I, I, I can never do that anymore. I can't even face the possibility of that anymore. I have to resign and find another job. And you can imagine just you know, how that must have felt. He was a very empath, had a lot of empathy for his, um, his patients. A really nice young Buddhist man. And I told him that he'd misunderstood the purpose of being a doctor. I said, your job is not to cure your patients. If you think it's to cure them, you will fail many, many times. And you'll get depressed many, many times. Your job is not to cure patients. Your job is to care for them. It's a totally different as they say, a ball game, when you make caring much more important than curing. You've cared for that man, the, 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 the girl who died. You cared for her husband. You cared for the children. You know you never need to fail caring. Sometimes you can't cure, but you can always care. He got it straight away. He went back to work. <laughs> and, now, and now he's a specialist doing colonoscopies. I think that's the right word. And anyway, just, I still remember just, actually a couple of our monks needed a colonoscopy. And the first one, I think many of you know him, Venerable Mudito. He works really hard helping building our monastery or retreat centre up in Newbury. And he needed a colonoscopy. But then, of course, there's a waiting list over here in uh, Australia. And I said, well, and he said, well, I can go private, but private is very expensive. And I said to him, um, colonoscopy, I know who, who could do that. <laughs> so he called up this, uh, my young disciple. He said, oh, yeah, sure, no worries. Bring him in a couple of days. You know who paid the bill? My doctor disciple. <laughs> gave it all for free. And gave really excellent service. It just the way, because he knew that caring was more important than curing. And that little um, piece of advice that saved you know, his career. And of course, we had this wonderful thing of gratitude. I helped him, so he wanted to help one of my monks. This is actually what caring is all about. And that's also what happens with your meditation. Are you trying to cure your defilements and all the silly stuff which goes on in your mind? If you are, it'll be endless. You won't be able to cure your defilements. You never get any peace in the meditation if you're trying to cure things. All those defilements, you know, the restlessness, just the, the, the desires, the cravings. Are you trying to get rid of them? If you are, it will be endless. Instead, care for them. 
care for your mind. Years and years, as a young monk, I, was, I had restlessness like everybody else. And I tried, you know, what I tried to do, you're watching your breath, okay, watch your breath go in now, I could start like that very easily. Then my mind would wander off, bring it back again. Then it would wander somewhere else, bring it back again. Imagine doing that for five or six years. You think, this can't be the way. <laughs> so instead, afterwards, I asked a revolutionary question. Why does my mind wander? And I started to think, why are there some places in the world I just like being there? Why with some people I feel so happy with them? I don't want to go anywhere. Because we care for one another. And I realised I wasn't caring for my own mind. That's why every time I started to meditate, okay mind, you watch the breath, you don't go anywhere, okay? Imagine you had a friend like that. Imagine you had a, say, most females here, imagine you had a husband like that. Darling, I love you, but don't you go anywhere. You do it this way, and don't wander off anywhere. How long would that relationship last? <laughs> Not that long at all. When you're kind, and you trust one another, that's what I am like with my, say, breath. I trust it. Now my breath has been looking after me for 71 years. Hasn't let me down yet. So I trust it. We have a good relationship together. So my mind too, I care for it. I don't try and cure things. I care for it. Mm. Okay, I'll just say it briefly. That was the wonderful simile of the anger-eating monster. That was, I read this in the, uh, again, the Buddha's teachings. It's in the, the Yaka Samyutta. I did adapt it. And as I'm sure you can understand the part, parts where I adapted this. But the story which you know, I present is of this this um, empress. This uh, empress had gone to the temple to listen to a Dhamma talk. And when she went, while she was away, this big monster came into her palace. And when the monster came into the palace, it was so ugly, so frightening and smelly and violent that all of the guards, we don't have any guards in this, well, we do have one guard in this retreat centre, that's Christina. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Christina. <laughs> okay, yeah. So we don't have big people as a security guards. But anyway, so they had big people in palaces and stuff. And they were so frightened when they see this big, angry, violent monster coming in, that they all like hid. And they hid un behind the flower pots, and they went into the cupboards, went under the tables. They're supposed to be protecting the palace, but they were too scared to. So the monster came right into the throne room 
and sat on the empress's chair, the throne. And that was just one move too much for the security. They eventually came out from <laughs> the cupboards and under the tables. So that's too much. Get out of here. This is our empress's place, not yours. Get out now. And when they started shouting at the, this demon, this monster, this monster just grew bigger. More violent, more angry, more ugly and more smelly. And I say more smelly because uh, that's part of when you get angry, this, the odour comes off worse and worse. And so they were trying to get rid of this monster for an hour or two. It just got bigger and bigger, more and more violent, more unpleasant in all ways. So when the Empress came back, this monster was huge. And it was so scary and so violent. And even the stench coming off that monster was so bad that the maggots which were crawling on the monster's skin, even they were sick. They threw up, they vomited. But the reason why she was the empress was because she was the smartest of everybody. So she saw what was happening and she knew the solution straight away. Instead of saying, get out of here, you don't belong. She said, welcome. Thank you for visiting me. Has anyone got you something to drink yet? or something to eat. And her speech was sincere. So, just that sincere speech, the monster got less violent, less angry, even shrank an inch, and the maggots you know, stopped vomiting. <laughs> and all the people in the palace got the message very quickly. So they started getting him something to drink. What would you like to drink? No, we have some nice tea. We can have like green tea or herbal tea, or we can have some Sri Lankan tea with condensed milk if you like. <laughs> or we can have something to eat. Do you want so some juices, some water? How about something to eat? And one of the guards said, how about a pizza? Because you know pizzas, you get monster-sized pizzas. I don't know if you have those in Singapore, but we have them over here. <laughs> and every kind act, kind word, or kind thought, and the monster grew an inch smaller, less ugly, less violent, less offensive. And some of those guards and soldiers trying to guard the place offered him a foot massage. He had such a big feet, this huge monster, that took about 10 or 20 guards just for each toe. <laughs> Have you ever had a foot massage? Is it pleasant? Also, they gave him a shoulder massage as well because I had such a big head. Obviously, he had some shoulder pain. <laughs> so every act of kindness, he kept going smaller and smaller and smaller. And soon he was back to the size when he first came into the palace. And they never stopped there, they kept on being kind. Until soon that monster got so small, one more act of kindness, 
and the monster vanished completely away. And that's in the Yaka Samyutta. And things about the pizzas and the foot massage, you know that I added those. But the story behind it was so true. So many things in your life are anger-eating monsters. You know, even that, even like I do a lot of work with uh, the Cancer Support Association, now they're called Solaris over here. How many times if you have a, a, a tumour, get out of here, you don't belong. They've invaded your palace. How about saying welcome? Bad thoughts, anger, any other sicknesses. Welcome. You'll find, if you do it properly, these problems shrink. That's why caring is the best way of curing. But caring comes first. And just to justify that before I finish off, because I'm running out of time as usual, that that is part of the Eightfold Path. The second factor of the Eightfold Path, Samasankapa, the three Sankapas. The first one is Nekama, basically letting go. Second one is kindness, caring, Atwayapada. And the third one, Ahingsaka, gentleness. This is the motivation, where you're coming from on this path, included in meditation. You meditate not to get things, but to let go of things. See how free you can be. Kindness is the second factor of the second part of the Eightfold Path. The kindness, caring, it's important in your meditation. And the gentleness, not being so harsh, come on, I'm gonna, this is it. You know, I'm getting old now, this is my last time I can probably go to a meditation retreat. Meditation or bust. You'll bust. <laughs> I can guarantee that. <laughs> so, be kind, be gentle, and let go. Sometimes I call that, make peace, be kind, be gentle. That's in your meditation, that's the Dharma, that's the teaching of the Buddha. And it works. Okay, it's nine o'clock now, so that's the first little taste of some meditation instructions. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Excellent. Okay, so have a nice relaxing day. Be kind to yourself. As I said last night, you can always ask your body, body, what would you like to do now? Carry on meditating, do some walking meditation, have a walk in the forest, go and lay down, have a rest, because some of you must be jet-lagged. Lunch is at 11 o'clock. Afterwards, you've got a lot of freedom, especially the first couple of days. Ask your body, body, what do you really need? And listen to it. Be mindful and be kind. Care for this body. And this body will care for you. Sometimes it'll tell you, just go to your room, take a nap. Do it. 
And after a while, I was saying, Body, what do you want to do? He said, I want to go in the hall and meditate. Then you find you have no problem at all with your body. Mind, what do you want to do? Yeah, let's go for it. My body and my mind are good friends. And if you care for it, it cares for you. Okay, so have a wonderful morning, a wonderful lunch, and I'll see you this afternoon. The next um, appointment for me, apparently, is the Sutta class this afternoon. It's going to be on Anapanasati, but the introduction, I'm not sure if you've heard before. So it's something interesting. See you then.